Good morning. It is good to be with you today. And if this is your first time, my name is Justice Froman. I'm the pastor here. I'm so glad you chose to worship with us. And um, you are going to need a, a Bible. So if you could grab your Bible and flip to John chapter 10, we'll be wrapping up uh, John chapter 10 today. We're going to be in verses 22 uh, to 42. And kind of as we like to do things here, we are going to read the text. Uh, Get it in our souls, and then uh, we'll pray and unpack it together. So, uh, are you doing all right? Good. It's been good so far this morning. Amen? It feels like the Spirit of the Lord is moving, and so um, we're just going to jump right into John 10, uh, verse 22. And if you're there, just say jump. All right, good. Here we go. Verse 22. At that time... The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone Him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you were gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, the Scriptures cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, God, that you've gathered us today on the Lord's day in your house and that we get to spend time in your word. I thank you for you know, everyone here, my brothers and sisters, that you've gathered us together to speak to us. I pray that you would. I pray that you'd guide our time, that you'd open our eyes to see, that you'd uh, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand, and that you'd just draw us to yourself today. I pray that you'd guide my speech and my words, that what I say would be profitable, and, um, and just come and have your way, God. Father, I pray that we would all leave here as the text ends today, and that many of us would believe in you, Jesus, for salvation. And Father, I pray that the words in my mouth and the meditation in my heart would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. Um, so, last week we talked about the Good Shepherd. Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. And he gave all this figure of speech of the shepherd. And he kind of continues that today, talking about how he is a shepherd and how he knows the sheep. And the sheep know him and all of those things. They know his voice. So he kind of continues this shepherd language. And so I thought I'd bring a sheep joke to you today. You know? So here's the joke. What do you, what do you call a sheep with no legs? A cloud. <laughs> that's okay. I told that joke to a sheep once, and he said, that's bad. Yeah, you, you know, you love the preacher jokes, right? I never do that. I figured I'd try it. I don't ever tell jokes like that, but I thought that one was good. Um, so what we see here is that John's reason for writing the book of John, the author John, his reason for, reason for writing his book is evangelism, and he, he's not hiding that. He's pretty clear about that. At the end of his book, in, ver, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, by believing, you may have life in His name. And so he says, look, I've written all these things. I've written this whole account of Jesus' life so you'd believe in Him, that He was the Son of God, and that, and that by believing in Him, you'd experience a life, an abundant life, a full, eternal life. That's the purpose. And it's really clear in our text today. Uh, the whole text today kind of contrasts belief with unbelief. That there are some who believe in Him, and then there's many who don't believe in Him. And what does it look like? What's the purpose uh, of um, believing. And it starts with this tension, this hostility from these Jewish religious leaders. So as we like to do, let's just go back verse by verse, back to verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The Feast of Dedication, this is the only time the Feast of Dedication is mentioned in uh, the New Testament. And the Feast of Dedication was... Um, really remembering this time where um, in 167 B.C., so before Jesus came on the scene, before this was written, the king of Syria invaded Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. So the king of Syria came in, desecrated the temple, made slaves of the Jews and uh, killed many of them and put in just terror on them. And one of the things he did was he took the temple of the Lord and he desecrated it. He, he set up idol worship. He set up a statue of Zeus, had people worshiping Zeus in the Lord's temple. He, uh, he sacrificed a pig on the altar to Jupiter. He, so, and, and if you know Judaism, uh, pigs were unclean. And so that was just grotesque. It was uh, the abomination of desolation. It was a foreshadowing of maybe some things to come in uh, the end times, and um, it's pretty crazy. So, I, I mean, if you go read about this period, these few years, it, it was horrific, uh, the things that he did to God's people. So, but then Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer, I mean, you would like to have that name. Judas the Hammer led a revolt of the Jews, led a revolt against this king, and uh, he reclaimed the temple, and he repurified it, and rededicated it to the true worship of the Lord on the 25th of their month, which we would call December. 
the 25th of December, 164 B.C., one of the things that they did on this day was they relit the seven-branched candlestick in the temple. And there's some stories around that. And so this, this, this feast would be called the Feast of Lights because of the relighting of the lights in the temple or the Feast of Dedication because they, re, they were able to rededicate the temple to the pure, true worship of the Lord. And this feast lasted eight days, and we know it as... Hanukkah. Did you know that? That's the origin of Hanukkah, is, uh, is this here. And so that's what they're celebrating. The Feast of Dedication is what the Hanukkah is what they're celebrating right there. Now, the interesting thing about this feast is that it's not prescribed in the Bible. You don't see it talked about at all in the Old Testament. It's not prescribed for the Jewish people. It happened in the intertestamental period. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it happened in there. And so, and this is the only mention of it in the Bible at all, but it's not prescribed here. So the point is that Jesus observed um, a feast, a festival, a celebration that was non-biblical, extra-biblical. It wasn't unbiblical in the sense of contrary to Scripture, but it was just extra-biblical. It wasn't prescribed in Scripture, which means... Because you have some people, you have a group of people that are like, you know, around Christmas time, they're like, why do you celebrate Christmas? Don't you know it's a pagan holiday? Why are you celebrating Christmas? That's not in the Bible. Why are you celebrating? That's not in the Bible. Well, Jesus celebrated some holidays that weren't in the Bible. So I think it's okay. What do you think? You think Jesus would celebrate Christmas? I probably think so. And, um, and so it's just interesting. And really, what we see here is that Jesus is the true temple, isn't he? So he, when he shows up at this time where they're celebrating the fact that the worship of God, the temple of God, had been perverted and deluded and desecrated and that it has been restored and rededicated, Jesus shows up to say, the worship of God, again, has been perverted and desecrated and polluted and I'm here as the true temple of God to rededicate and reinstitute true worship of the Lord. So he says, uh, man, it's the time. Feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. That's interesting. It's just a, he, he didn't normally hang out there, and at the, he wasn't really teaching there at the moment, but he was walking through the colonnade of Solomon. It was this covered place. It was winter, so it was probably a little more warmer and out of the weather than the open courts. But it's interesting. Maybe this is the reason why in Acts, when the early church began to meet, they met in, from house to house and in the temple. And when they met in the temple, it says in several places that they would gather at the colonnade of Solomon. Maybe they were doing this in honor, a recognition, a remembrance of where Jesus would teach. And so this is Jesus walking through um, the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you're the Christ? Tell us plainly. So the Jews gathered around him. Now, they weren't wanting to play like ring around the rosy or anything. This wasn't a pleasant gathering around him. The, the word here really means that they surrounded him. The only other place that this word for gathered is used in the New Testament is in Luke 21.20 where it describes how Rome would uh, surround Jerusalem before its destruction. 
So this, this idea is very hostile. The Jew, Jewish leaders of the day, they're surrounding him. They're kind of angry with him. They're wanting to trap him. And they say, well, well how, how long will you keep us in suspense? Some translations say, how long will you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Do you think they're like really inquisitive? They're just sincerely just wanting to be clear. Help us believe Jesus. Do you think that's the case? No, they're like blaming him for their unbelief. Why are you keeping us in doubt and suspense? Why, why are you keeping us from really believing how we should believe? If you were just more clear, then we would believe. Well, that's not true. He's like, just tell us plainly if you're the Christ. Now, Christ is the Greek word uh, for Messiah. So, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, God's chosen one, the deliverer, the Christ. Why didn't Jesus just explicitly say that he's the Christ? When they said, tell us plainly, why didn't he just say, I'm the Christ? Why didn't he do that? Well, it wasn't that he was shy or that he uh, was afraid or anything of that nature, but the there was a lot of misconceptions about what the Messiah would do. The Messiah of their day, and, and even my understanding of, of many Jews today, their, their understanding of the Messiah is that he would be a political revolutionary. He would be someone who came in and built an army and led a, a revolution against the Roman oppression of their day and reclaim Jerusalem's status as high and exalted, and, and free the people from their slavery and oppression. They thought that's what the Messiah would come to do. In the same way that Moses freed the Israelites the, uh, from their slavery in Egypt, they thought the coming Messiah is going to come and free us from our oppression of Rome. So he knew if he publicly said, I'm the Messiah, that the, the public would take that to mean, all right, grab your gun. I mean, grab, get all your ammo. It's we're going. Let's go to start training. And he did. It's go time. And he did not want that to happen because that's not why he came. He came to bring in a spiritual revolution, a spiritual liberty. He didn't came to come to build an army. So I mean, he did. Um, Reveal himself as the Christ to the woman at the well. Clearly to her, he revealed it. It wasn't that he was scared to reveal it. It's just that he's like, this is not the way to do it. But the point is, they're blaming Jesus. Why don't you just be clear with us? Why don't you tell us what's going on? They blame Jesus for their unbelief. Now we hear the same objections today, don't we? We hear the same people blaming God for their unbelief. Well, you know, I would believe in God if He would just, if he would just show Himself to me. If, he, he, if God would just show up in my bedroom and say, I'm God, I would believe. You wouldn't. You thought you were on something. You thought you were hallucinating. You'd think you saw a demon. You wouldn't think it was God. I, I would believe if I saw a miracle, like a bona fide miracle, undeniable, before my eyes, I could verify a miracle. If I saw a miracle, then I would believe in God. Really? You think so? Um, I would believe if fill in the blank. You name it. We've heard it 
all. That this reason or that reason, but ultimately it always points to if God would just give me more evidence, He hasn't given me sufficient evidence, and if He'd give me more, then I would believe. And we blame God for our unbelief. Now this is not a new thing. This happened in the, the Bible where there's this story that Jesus tells about this rich man and Lazarus. And um, the rich man is this rich guy, Lazarus, is this poor beggar, and he just wants the scraps off of this rich man's table, and he won't give it to him. Well, then they both die. Lazarus goes to paradise, goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to a good place. The rich man goes to Hades and is in torment. This is in Luke chapter 16. And... Uh, and then there's this great chasm. And so the rich man being tormented say, hey, Abraham, can you just send Lazarus down to bring some water to me because I'm just, you know, thirsty and tortured down here. It's so hot. And Abraham says, all right, like there's a, there's a great chasm between us. We can't go to you. You can't come to us. It's not, it's this interesting peak into the afterlife. Well, um, then the rich man says, well, if that's the case, then send Lazarus back to tell my brothers because I have like five brothers and if somebody just came back from the dead and told them, then they would repent. Then they would change. They'd turn their way so they didn't have to come here. Abraham said, I'm sorry, but he said, they've been given Moses and the prophets, which was the, the whole Old Testament is what he's referring to. They've been given the Bible. And if they do not believe it, they're not going to believe if someone rises from the dead. The point being is that we've been given sufficient reason to believe. We've been given plenty of evidence to believe. We've been given the Word of God that describes how God saves us and how we can have a relationship with Him. But He's like, if they won't believe God's Word, they're not going to believe at all. It's not that there's lack of evidence, it's, it's that you choose to remain in your unbelief. I really believe that most Americans, most unbelieving Americans, haven't actually thought through the claims of Jesus. They haven't like sat down with the gospel and a good commentary and a pen and a paper and some time and, and okay, I'm going to really consider these things and see, are they true? I don't think most Americans have really considered the things of God. The problem is not evidence. The problem is the heart. And so today we're going to see five good reasons out of the text. There's plenty of reasons to believe in God. Plenty of reasons to believe in Jesus. Today we're going to see five in our text today uh, why we should believe in God. So the first one is, I mean, he, he mentions it right here, of the works of God. Back to verse 24. The Jews gathered around him, said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, the works that I do in my Father's name, bear witness about me. Um, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So he says, I told you. He's like, just tell us plainly. He said, I told you. Uh, Jesus gave them plenty of evidence to believe that he was God. Uh, he says, uh, for instance, in chapter 3, he says, I told you I am the one who came from heaven. 
Then he says, I told you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Then he says, I told you I'm the unique son of God. I told you I will judge all humanity, chapter 5. I told you all should honor me just as they honor the Father. I told you the Hebrew Scriptures all speak of me. I told you I perfectly reveal God as Father. I told you I always please God and never sin. This is just throughout the Gospel of John so far. I told you I'm uniquely sent from God. I told you before Abraham was, I am. I told you I'm the Son of Man, prophesied by Daniel. I told you I will rise myself from the dead. I told you I'm the bread of life. I told you I'm the light of the world. I told you I'm the door. I told you I'm the good shepherd. What else do you want me to tell you? I told you. But he doesn't just say, I told you. He says, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness. So at this moment, he's pointing to the things that I told you are the things that I've done. I've done the works of God. You know, we've said that there's really like seven signs in the Gospel of John that John is recording uh, to point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. There's seven signs. Here's some of them. In chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. That's the first sign. And then he cleansed the temple of the extortionists, embodying the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who would have zeal for God's uh, temple. In chapter 4, Jesus healed the son of a royal official without ever taking a step in the direction of the child who was sick and dying in another town. So he just spoke, and this royal son was healed. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. In chapter 6, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 men and plus women and children. And then after feeding the 5,000, he miraculously walked across the sea, walking on water. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. That's the most recent sign that they were discussing. That he healed a man who had been born blind and then in his confrontation with the Jewish leaders, he said, yeah, you're spiritually blind. You're unwilling to embrace the truth about Jesus. You're blind. So he did all these works no one had ever done before. Especially the man born blind. No one, there's no record in the Bible of anyone ever being healed of blindness from birth. Jesus did it. He says, yet you do not believe. Look at verse 26, he says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. That's an interesting thing that he says there. See, because what he didn't say is you're not among my sheep because you do not believe. There's a difference. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Here, he kind of brings up the topic of God's sovereignty in salvation. That, that God is the one working to save souls. It's the age-old debate and argument of God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. Um, the idea is, did God choose us or do we choose God? Did God choose us as He's the primary agent in salvation, or do we choose God and we're the primary agent in salvation? Which is it? These are the two extremes. 
God's sovereignty, human responsibility, predestination, free will. Which one is it? Yes, it's, it's, it's all of the above. God chooses us um, and we choose him. God chooses us. He says that, he says explicitly earlier, you did not choose me, I chose you. God, here he says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Not the other way around. God chooses us and we choose him, but I really believe the scripture teaches that we can't choose him unless he chooses us. We try to separate these two things, but Jesus interweaves these two things. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So the idea is that if you're a Christian here today, you're not a Christian because you decided to be a Christian, although that might be what it felt like. You're a Christian because God worked in your heart and in your life to draw you to himself. And um, Jesus selects us, which is incredible. Isn't that incredible? Like if we choose God, it's like, man, I'm a mess, but I choose God because he's great. But if he chooses us, it's like, I'm a mess, and he still chose me. He still said, yeah, that goofball right there, I want him, come here. And he chooses us and selects us and draws us into himself, yet at the same time, we are fully responsible for our choices. You can ask God how that works when we get there, okay? So the works of God. The idea is this, that God has done so many works, Jesus has done so many works that prove that he is who he said he is, that he um, did what he said he did, and we can believe in him because of his works. The second thing is the ways of God. Look at verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they, and they follow me. How, how can I know if I'm a sheep of God? He just said, I don't believe because you're not my sheep. How do I know if I'm a sheep? Well, my, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So first, hear my voice. This is the calling. Like The relationship with Jesus starts with an initial call to salvation. Jesus said, hey, I want you, come to me, be mine, follow me. It's a call to salvation. Um, chapter 8, verse 47 says, whoever is of God hears the word of God. That we hear the call of God. But um, what's difficult is that the Bible describes how we're like dead in our sins and, and we're hard to the things of God. It takes a miracle. It takes gospel power to change us, to regenerate us from unbelief to belief. The great British preacher Spurgeon said this. It's, it's so cool. It's easier to train a tiger to be a vegetarian than convincing an unregenerate person to the gospel. He's like, I bet I could go train a tiger to only eat kale before I in my power could convince an unregenerate unbeliever to believe the gospel. It takes the power of God. We need divine illumination and His Spirit to draw us. That's why I open my prayers oftentimes in our times together. That God, open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. God, give us a heart to receive Your words because we can't do it on our own. 
We need Him. We need His power at work within us to call us to be His. So He says, they hear my voice and then they, I know them. This is a relationship language that, that He wants a relationship with us. He doesn't, he's not content with just being a distant deity. He wants to be near to us and to know us. There is no greater privilege than to be known by God. I mean, we're all seeking to be known, aren't we? Like, it's not enough to just know people, isn't it? It's not enough to just know people. We're not fully satisfied until we're actually known by people. Um, Rory, my daughter, four-year-old daughter, and I were watching uh, this movie, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, like the new one. I don't know if you've seen this or not. I don't think this is going to be a spoiler because I'm not giving away too much. But, but the movie starts with Sonic, this hedgehog, the blue hedgehog. He, um, he, he goes to, he's like an alien apparently. He goes to Earth and, uh, and he's told that he can't be found out. He's got this power. No one can learn about it. So he's got to stay in hiding. So he's like hiding in the woods, you know, from this small town. And, um, but he goes and looks, you know, observes everybody in town. So he knows everybody in town. He knows what they do and what they like and who they are, and he feels like he knows them. But the whole tension at the beginning of the movie is that although he knows everyone in town, he's not known by anyone in town. And he, he, wasn't, he couldn't be satisfied relationally until he was actually known by someone. And, and so in our relationship with God, it's not just enough to know God or to know things about God. He's like, I want to know you. I want to know the details about your life. I want to have this type of relationship with you. And then he says, they follow me. They follow me. But how, this is sanctification. Um, that following God is a, a lifelong journey of discipleship. Sanctification is becoming more and more like Christ, maturing in this life as we follow Him. But how do we follow Him? They, said, they, they follow me. How do we follow Him? Well, we follow Him uh, by following His Word. Jesus says this over and over and over and over and over again. Abide in my Word, abide in my Word. Listen to my word. Um, actually, in John chapter 17, he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So if he says, follow me, and following Jesus is a journey of sanctification, how do we do that? He says, sanctify them in truth. What does that mean? Your word is, is truth. It, it's very important to note in today's world where people don't see God's word as uh, sufficient. People prioritize um, personal experience and mysticism over God's word. It's incredible how, how many people will say things like, God told me to do X, Y, and Z without ever consulting the Bible. It doesn't make any sense. You know, we have the objective, revealed word of God and I can guarantee he's not going to tell you anything that contradicts anything in his word. So if we want to know what God told you, let's just go to what he told 
you. And, and But somehow we elevate this idea of hearing personally from God over the sufficiency of Scripture to guide us into all truth. I, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak in other ways. He does. He does. He's spoken to me in other ways. But our uh, ear to hear God's voice in other ways is calibrated by our understanding of his revealed word. And um, many people don't believe the Bible is really enough. Man, I wish God would speak to me. Do you want to hear God speak? Just read your Bible. Just read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, man, that would be cool. Read it out loud. Read it out loud. And you will hear God speak audibly. You can do that when you get home today. We follow Jesus by following his word. So immerse yourself in it. Immerse yourself in it. I mean, just make a daily habit of I'm going to get some of God's word in me today. Every day. I'm going to immerse myself in it so then I can hear the word of God. The idea here is that um, the way of God, the ways of God, is a reason, is a reason to believe in him. And what I mean by that is, why is it a reason to believe? Because I believe his ways are better than all the other ways available. Living, following Christ is the best way to live. It's the best way to experience the, the human experience. You know, the, 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 uh, the, there are some bad ways. You know, my, my wife and I were going to Long Beach yesterday and we take this route to our destination, and we're following Google to get somewhere, and um, we get to the, the, the road's closed. Like, this main road is closed. If I could go through the road, I'd be there in two minutes, but now it's going to take me ten minutes to get around this. I, I encountered a road block. Now, the reality is that there was a better way to get there where I didn't encounter a roadblock that made my journey extra difficult. But Google failed me. Google failed me. And, and in the same way, I would say the, the, the ways of the, the world are, are really inferior ways to live than the ways of God. There, there is a better way to go through life. There's a better way uh, to get to heaven, there's a better way. Even the early church, before they were called Christians, the early church was, were called a people of the way, followers of the way. Why were they called that? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through me, that I am the path the best path of life and the best way to live. And, uh, and so when the early church began, and they're like, what do we call these people? These people are all gathering around and they're studying the scriptures and they're you know, talking about their belief in that Jesus guy. What do we call these people? Well, there's followers of the way. The way. What if we were known? What if we were known less by our title or, of Christian? and more by a way of life that shaped how we live. What if people looked at your life and said, the way that you live 
looks a lot like the way that Jesus lived. Maybe I'll just call you followers of the way. I, I truly believe that the ways of God are better ways to live. Why believe in Jesus? Because he offers us a better way to live. Namely, a life of joyful, peaceful, purposeful, loving, contented communion with God and with others. All right, so the ways of God. And then fourthly, or thirdly, I'm a little ahead of myself, huh? Well, behind myself, I guess, I don't know. But um, the works of God, the ways of God, and here's my favorite, the warranty of God. The warranty of God. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I love that. He says, I give them eternal life. Salvation is a gift, remember? Um, it, it, it's eternal life, meaning that it's permanent. It's never-ending. Uh, and, and, but here's the thing. Even though it is eternal and never-ending, eternal life is really more about a quality of life that begins now than a quantity of life that starts later. It's a quality of life that begins now. It's not just when you die, you get to heaven. It's also when you believe heaven comes to you. That he gives you the ability to live the abundant life of Christ. A better life. And he says, um, they will never perish. Man, that's quite a promise. He says, they will never perish because no one will snatch them out of my hand. We're in good hands with Jesus. He says, you're, you're never going to be snatched out of my hand. No thief, no enemy, no wolf. Not even the devil, nothing can take us out of his grip of grace. And Romans tells us this. In Romans 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say the, uh, uh, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on later in, in verse 38 to say, For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like we have this blessed assurance that Jesus is mine, that I have the warranty of God. But we have mixed relationships with warranties, don't we? Don't we? Because... Um, Many of us have had bad experiences with warranties. Maybe when you just see the word warranty, you're like, ugh. Like many, many warranties are called limited lifetime warranties. Emphasis on the limited. Th these, are, these are limited lifetime warranties. And most of the time, your warranty uh, gets voided because something you did wrong. You ever read your warranty? It's incredible how, much, how many things will void the warranty. Limited lifetime warranty. If you open it, the warranty is voided. It's like, it's incredible, but it's usually a result of something that you did wrong, that your warranty is voided, whatever warranty that you have. But on the other hand, Jesus gives you an unlimited eternal warranty for your soul and you cannot void it because you did not earn it or purchase it. it. It was a gift of God, and he makes good on his warranty. This is the idea of eternal security. He goes on. 
I give them eternal life and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So he says, so you can't snatch them out of the Father's hand. So he says, my hand, you can't snatch them out of my hand and then you can't snatch them out of my Father's hand so you're double covered. You're double covered here. Um, and he's, he says he's greater than all. How can we be sure and confident in his warranty? Because he's greater than all. He's strong to save and he's strong to secure. We are saved by grace and we're secured by grace. My salvation is not contingent on my ability to hold on to him, but his ability to hold on to us. It's not our grip of him, but his grip of us. I heard someone say that a lot of people say once saved, always saved. And they prefer when saved, always saved. When saved, always saved. R.C. Sproul says it this way, if you have it, you'll never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. A true faith in Christ is persevering, fruit-bearing faith, and that person is secure. True faith is a following faith. It's a habitual, lifelong faith that is marked by living in the ways of God. But if you're in Christ, you're secure. You have the hand of Jesus and the hand of the Father who tightly hold on to you. And they say, no one can snatch you out of our hand. He even, he even kind of enforces this by saying, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. They're one in nature, but they're distinct. He, he, he distinguished himself from the Father. But that they're one in nature, they're God. The Lord our God is one, the Scripture says. But we see distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity, that the God is one in nature, but three persons. Um, I've said it before that it's one what, but three who's. One what, God, three who's. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit mind-blowing, you just got to understand that he's a different being than us. He's, he's a holy being. He's an other being. He's God. And uh, it's hard to wrap our minds around the unity of the Trinity, but the point is that Jesus and the Father are the strongest team to secure your soul for all eternity. And he gives a better warranty than the world gives. Like we have security of our salvation. Like, like think about, um, have you ever asked, like ask an unbeliever friend of yours, what happens when they die? Like just prod about what kind of eternal security are they experiencing? What warranty do they have for eternity? What happens when you die? And you'll hear things like, anybody? You become an animal? Yeah, you, you, we get reincarnated. If you're, if you're good, you come back as a lion. If you're bad, you come back as a squirrel. But yeah, we'll just come back and get another shot. Uh, reincarnation is one. Anybody else? What happens when you die? Nothing. We just cease to exist. Well, that's very hopeful. I bet you get up in the morning saying, man, I'm so glad that I just ceased to exist after my few years here. Anybody else? What happens when you die? Do what? Your soul leaves you. 
whenever you die, um, I don't know, I don't know. Um, Or maybe blank. Okay, so the point is, I haven't heard a lot of other convincing arguments for eternal security outside of Christ. Then ask your friend, why? Why do you believe that's what happens after you die? And it it gets even harder. And and so my, my goal is not to prod or make fun of your belief if any of these are your beliefs. The point being is I think a reason to believe in Christ is because God's warranty is better than anything else that's offered in the world. He actually offers us. Ask your Christian friend, or if somebody asks you as a believer, what happens when you die? You have an answer. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. I'm going to spend eternity in the presence of my good king. Why do you believe that? Well, because God promised it in his word, and you know what? He's never failed me yet. He promises in his word and he's never broken a promise yet. His word is true and his word is reliable and if we're in Christ, we have the warranty, the security of God because he's reliable. That kind of leads to the next one is the, the word of God. The word of God. So he says, you know, No one will snatch you out of my hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them. So this whole stoning thing, uh, that would have been an appropriate sentencing for blasphemy, which is what they're going to accuse him of. But, um, But here, there's like no trial. There's no sentencing. This is mob violence, which, which is not appropriate. Spurgeon again, he said, if they cannot answer holy arguments with fair reasoning, they can give hard answers with stones. If you cannot destroy the reasoning, you may perhaps destroy the reasoner. So there's like, let's just shut this guy up because we don't know how to answer him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? Um, See, Jesus doesn't cower. It's so interesting. Jesus doesn't cower. He doesn't run. He's not afraid of this mob who's trying to kill him. He just responds with words. You have this group that surrounded him, is angry and violent and ready to attack, and now they all have uh, stones in their hands. And Jesus is like, let's just keep talking. Which one of these? It's probably different than I would have responded. I probably would have said, see ya. Look, you know, like, I think I would respond a little bit different, but it just goes to show the confidence that Jesus has in his authority as the son of God. And he's like, which one of these, which one of these works? The healing of the man, the feeding the 5,000, my treatment of the poor, which one of these things are you going to kill me for? They respond and say, um, the Jews answered him, it's not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. Which is actually quite the opposite of what Jesus did. They say, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. But it's actually God made himself to be 
man, so it's actually very different than what they're accusing him. Um, but he goes on to say, um, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You were gods. If he called them gods, whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of God, of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So he immediately references Scripture and quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, which says, I said, you are God's Son of the Most High, all of you. This is speaking to judges, and he's talking about how as judges, they are acting as little gods. One commentator said that is gods, lowercase g, in the sense that they have been given the divine charge to execute a God-given office. That a judge acts kind of like a little god because he uh, has the authority to to sentence people, life or death. Like he can completely change your life whenever you get in front of a judge. And so in Psalm 82, it refers to these human judges as little gods. And Jesus here is giving this lesser to greater argument. He says, it's in the Bible that God calls people, human beings, gods. Not in the sense of divine but in the sense of operating in a God-given office. So it's in the Bible, and there's a historic precedence for it, the lesser. So then how much more, and you didn't, you didn't stone them for blasphemy, claiming to be God. So then the greater, but the Son of God made manifest, the Holy One sent by God, the Messiah, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, stone me for blasphemy. He uses this lesser to greater argument, but it's so interesting. He says the scriptures cannot be broken. It's not false. It cannot be annulled. Scripture is trustworthy. It's interesting that when Jesus is looking for a greater authority to appeal to, he's like, "All right, you have your word. I have my word." Which he is the word of God. So this is quite a unique situation. But he's like, we have your word and my word. What does God's word say? When Jesus is looking for a higher authority, he appeals to the scriptures. Jesus had a high view of the scriptures. You know, he said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. Not even a jot or a tittle. <laughs> a tittle? Not even tittle. Not even jot or tittle will pass away from the words of God. And so all things have been accomplished. I mean, he had such a high view of Scripture. It was an authority above all things, and he appeals to it, and we should too. We should too. It is the final authority of our life. We hold it up above every. person in the sense that these are the revealed words of God. We don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible, but we treasure it because it's God's words to us. It reveals to us who he is and what he is like. 
reveals to us the way of salvation. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Christ like we hold it up and we submit ourselves to it. We don't look down on it, analyzing, criticizing. We hold it up here. If me and the Bible disagree, the Bible wins every time. I need to change. Jesus is appealing to Scripture. Verse 39, he says, Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It's interesting that that Jesus is just revealing his authority and sovereignty over even his death. He's surrounded by this mob ready to kill him, and somehow he escapes. And he escapes not because he's afraid, but because he's like, now is not the time And these men aren't going to determine when I die. I will lay down my life when the time is right. So he escapes, verse 40. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. That last one was the word of God. So so, um, the word of God. We We can believe on Jesus because we have the words of God that point us to Jesus and tell us, that he is the son of God and salvation is only found in him and faith comes by hearing so that we can, the word of God can convince us that he is is the Messiah. And then the witnesses of God. This is the last one. So verse 40, he, um, he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there they remained. At this time, John had been dead for a little while. So John was no longer on the scene, but this is where John's ministry started. This is kind of where all all the things began. And um, this, verse 40, is the end of Jesus' public ministry. This is the end of his public ministry. Chapter 11 and 12 are this transition between his public ministry into his passion. And so we'll have a couple transition chapters, and in chapter 13 we'll pick up the passion of Christ where he begins uh, his journey to the cross. uh, But here is the end of his public ministry. It's interesting that his ministry began and ended with references to John the Baptist. And and so he left this kind of Jerusalem and he went to the Jordan where the place where he had been baptizing at first and there he remained. Uh, He he left not because he was afraid, he left to prepare for the next greatest battle. He wasn't scared of these men. He left to prepare for the next battle. He knew he was going to the cross, and he had to get ready for that. And so he withdrew. Um, But here's the kind of the idea, is that sometimes you need to leave the hostile people alone and move to someone who's more open to the Lord. Like, like you you notice, he left these people who were trying to kill him, like, didn't believe. And then, but he moves to a place where people are more open to him and many believe in him. And if you're dealing with somebody, you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, you have somebody at work or somebody in your family who's so hostile to God, and every time you talk about God, they just get angry, and they, they can't stand it, and they just want to argue with you, and they, they've learned some things out of a book they read one time, and they, they give you some arguments, try to poke holes in your faith, and, and they're just like, they just want to argue all the time. And it's like, well, I don't have to feel pressure to like change that person. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And there might be a a right time where God prepares them to hear the gospel, but right now is not the time. And it is okay. Jesus did it. It is okay to say, you know, thank you. 
for your time. Appreciate your words. But maybe we'll stop talking about this. And I'll move on to someone who is more open to the gospel. There's plenty of people who are ripe to the things of God. Their heart is ready. They're eager. They're willing. There's people out there that are just waiting. They don't know they're waiting, but they're just waiting for somebody to tell them about Jesus. And they'll believe. And sometimes it's okay to move away from the people who are hostile into the people who are more receptive. It's okay to say, now's not the right time for you. Verse 41, he says, And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. It's interesting. They said, John did no miracles. John did no signs. All he did was point people to Jesus. Yet, he had a major influence on people's lives, even after he was dead. Even after he's dead, the things that John said to people resonated so much with them that they were ultimately led to the Lord in this moment because of things he said. And he didn't do any miracles. Yet John was even said to be the greatest man ever born of woman by Jesus. So he was praised by Jesus. He had such a massive impact on people, yet he never did any miracles. See, I think sometimes we think that we're not making a difference if we're not gifted with great speech or if we don't have a beautiful singing voice or if we can't draw large crowds or if we don't have a great social media following that we can't really do anything significant because it's just little old me and I don't know what I can do. But, but here, man, God uses John's simple life of pointing people to Jesus to continue to lead people to salvation even after he's dead. All we have to do is tell people true things about Jesus. True things about, that's what he said. Man, we, they did, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. Just tell people the truth of Jesus, and you will have a big impact on this world. Verse 42, many believed in him there. It wasn't in the big religious city, Jerusalem, the temple. That was the place. If you wanted to know God, you'd go to Jerusalem. You'd go to the temple. But it wasn't there that people believed in Jesus. It was in this obscure, small town in the middle of nowhere where God drew people to himself and saved many people. So there's really two application points to consider today, and that's one is, do you believe in Jesus? I mean, the whole passage is contrasting the unbelief of these hostile Jewish leaders to the belief of these simple people. Like, do you believe in Jesus? We have five good reasons from this text to believe in Jesus, the works of God, like he did so many things that point to him as God, the ways of God, that he offers a better way to live, and those who follow him will find eternal life in his name. The, the warranty of God, he offers us the best eternal security. If you're in him, you can be confident that you're going to stay in him. The word of God, his word is trustworthy and true, and it testifies to Jesus as the Christ. And the witnesses of God, that 
God uses people to help us believe in him. And John gave his life for what he believed about Jesus. And all the disciples, the early disciples, they gave their lives. They were martyred. They were killed for their belief and their proclamation of Jesus as the risen Christ. Now, you might say that many people die for things that they believe. Like, we're well acquainted with people in the world who are terrorists, who die, suicide, um, terror, for things that they believe. People who die for what they believe is not new. That's true. Um, but they died for believing that they had seen the risen Christ. And you might die for things you believe, but you won't die for things you made up. This wasn't something that they came together and said, look, let's just put together this story that Jesus rose from the grave. And that'll be great, and we'll tell everybody he's, he's risen. It's not something they made up. They really saw the risen Christ, and they died for it. They were witnesses of God, and we should believe because of it. So do you believe, and are you witnesses? Do you believe? Are you witnesses? John was just a witness. I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody. I'm just pointing people to Jesus, and that's all you have to do. Tell people true things about Jesus. But Jesus requires a response. You can't be neutral with Jesus. You can either respond in hostile rebellion like the Jewish leaders did. I'm just not going to believe. Or you can respond in humble repentance. Which will it be? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you, God, for just uh, your spirit at work in this place. I thank you that you say that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purposes for which it is sent. And I pray that the faith-giving power of the word of Christ would stir in us right now and um, give us faith to believe. I pray that a people who don't know you, by your spirit at work in them right now, would trust you for the first time, that they would repent and believe, that they'd turn from their sin and embrace you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, believing that you are the Son of God who lived a perfect life who died on the cross for our sins in our place. You took our punishment for sin, and then you rose from the grave, proving that you are who you said you were. You're God, and you broke the power of sin and death, and you gave us victory over death and sin, and you offer us eternal life for all of us who believe in you. And so I pray that we'd trust you, many for the first time today, that you'd save us, and I pray for those who are already believers that we, would, that we would grow in our confidence of you, that we'd grow in our faith, and that we'd experience uh, the blessed assurance that comes with the warranty of God, that you have us in your hands, and no one will ever snatch us out of it. Come and work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.